Greetings to the good students of St. Teresa who have faithfully gathered with me over the last seven years to make a journey through the entire Bible. Tonight, we complete that journey. Tonight, I'll be returning to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, bringing our journey through the Bible and the curtains rise in the book of Genesis to the curtain coming down at the end of the book of Revelation. But before I get started, let's begin as we always do, offering a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we again thank you for bringing us together, this time online, to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light, Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's been quite a spring quarter, one unlike any we've ever participated in in the past. This will be, I believe, our ninth lecture, if not the ninth, then the tenth. This is the last class that has lectures still ongoing. I finished all the others last week. And so if I'm unable to finish the book of Revelation with this particular podcast lecture, I will certainly do so next week. But we'll see where the night leads. In the meantime, do know uh, that I will intend on coming to St. Teresa on Thursday nights in August to make my summer series available so that you can see my face once again and hear my voice in live teaching. That series will be entitled Moses, the Man and Friend of God. I'm sort of titling it as well, A Month with Moses. And so I look forward to greeting many of you um, at summer's end. In the meantime, uh, I am optimistic that by the time the fall rolls around, we'll have opportunity to recontinue my classes in all my other venues, and I'm still looking for a Thursday night location. Those plans were sort of put on hold with the COVID-19 crisis and stay-at-home orders, so uh, I'll keep you abreast of those developments as they develop. Having said that, let's return to the book of Revelation. You may remember in the first lecture, I broke down the three parts of the book of Revelation, and those parts had to do with uh, elements of the narrative concerning things that once were, then are now, and eventually will be. And the first three chapters of the book of Revelation were dedicated to those timely messages that were sent through Revelation by John to the angels or the pastors of the seven churches in Central Asia Minor, Central Turkey of our day. That was the content of the material of the what is section of the book of Revelation. The second section of the book of Revelation that is, uh, 
the section that detailed the events that would lead up to and would culminate in the destruction of the temple at the hand of the Romans in 70 AD was the subject matter of chapters 4 through 19. And those events, again, revealed to John, were predicted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, for instance, when he said that within the generation listening to his teaching, by the end of their lives, not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. And that prophetic announcement was completed at the end of last week's lecture, with the conclusion of chapter 19, which leaves us with chapters 20 and 21 and 22, chapters having to do with that third part of the book of Revelation, that is, and what will be. The events of Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22 have not yet taken place. We trust that this prophetic insight given to John will in fact take place someday because all that he predicted through the revelation given to him in chapters 4 to 19 most certainly came to pass as well. So let's keep that in mind. Everything I'm speaking about in this lecture has not yet come to completion, although the process toward its eventual fulfillment has begun. Let's dive right in. In chapter 20, a new part of the vision. John says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, that is hell in the apocalyptic literature, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Now, not the beast, that's Rome, and not the minions of religious leaders who collaborated with the Romans. Those two entities at the end of chapter 19 had already been thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Verse 19 of chapter 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. That, of course, is Jesus. But the beast, Rome, was captured, and with him the false prophet, religious leaders, who were collaborators with the Romans, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So in verse 1 of chapter 20, this angel seized the dragon, another entity, who is also called that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him in the vision for a thousand years. Not a literal time period, but a time period that we still are coursing through. Along the lines of the psalmist who says, To the Lord, in Psalm 50, verse 10, belong the cattle on a thousand hills. That, of course, is a way poetic of saying that all the cattle on every hill belong to the Lord. So we don't get bogged down with the literal interpretation of a number and say we start counting at a certain date and at the end of a thousand biblical years, events must come to pass. In point of fact, as St. Peter points out in his epistle to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years to the Lord 
like a day. So we're in that period as I teach you tonight. Verse 3, he threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And then after that, John knew somehow that he must be set free for a short time to determine, in my estimation, whether or not he has been effectively rehabilitated. God is a God of mercy, and he holds out that hope even for his arch enemy. So as I speak to you tonight, Satan is effectively bound, and yet his influence through his minions continues to influence world events, as we are all so well aware. Now after this I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of all of those who had been beheaded. Remember chapter 6, verse 9, the souls of those beheaded martyrs all under the altar in heaven, a place of great honor and esteem. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. They refused to think like a Roman, the mark on the forehead, or act like a Roman, the mark emblematic on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ as they do now. They're part of the communion of saints for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life parenthetically, until the thousand years were ended, they haven't ended yet. This parenthetical phrase, probably a later addition to the narrative. This, John recognizes in heaven, is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, that is, those martyrs who live in God's embrace as souls justified because of their martyrdom. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second and final death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will remain with him for a thousand years. And again, priests of God. Does that presuppose that all of those who died as martyrs were all men and not married men, single and celibate? No. Remember, the role of a priest in the biblical narrative is to be a person who will intercede on behalf of others. And so those martyrs under the altar, martyrs all, who had their heads removed from their bodies for announcing their faith in Jesus, become intercessors for you and I. That's the doctrine of the communion of saints. They pray for us, and we can ask them to intercede on our behalf. That is how they serve as priests of God. Now, in verse 7, when the thousand years are over, and they have not ended yet, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will not have been rehabilitated, because John notes that he will go out to deceive the nations. In the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, referencing a leader of an ancient enemy of Israel that we first met in the book of Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. 
in number, that army will be like the sand on the seashore. And immediately they will march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Not Jerusalem, but the camp of God's people, that is, those who are figuratively in the wilderness, right? The church on journey to its promised land, and that would be heaven. So this army, led by Satan, marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown himself into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So as soon as Satan is released, he marshals all the forces antithetical to God's plan of salvation and assembling that army descends upon the church. And once God sees the intent of Satan and his destructive desire, he then intercedes in the situation and fire comes down from heaven to consume and devour them all. Now, after all of this, again, these events have not yet taken place. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated upon it, that would be God the Father. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And two books were opened. Books, plural. Two books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. That, a distinctive book in contradistinction to the other book that we're going to note. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Remember, in Judaism, deeds trump creeds. And your good deeds, acts of righteousness, are counted for you as a deposit you make in your salvific bank account. So the dead, at the end of time, were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Remember, Hades, the place of shadows, the realm and rule of the netherworld, where you waited in comfort the bosom of Abraham to be called forth to stand before the throne of grace and be told, well done, good and faithful servant. It's where Jesus descended to after his death. In the creed, a misappropriation of English translation, he did not descend into hell. He descended into Hades, the realm of the dead, where the righteous dead received their summons to come out and face the tribunal that would vindicate them. So the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Verse 13. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. There's no more death in God's kingdom. No more resting place in the bosom of Abraham. Now all men and women of righteous actions are going to be united one with another and with the Lord. John notes in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he 
was thrown into the lake of fire. There are consequences for not only what you do, but also what you fail to do. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, Lord, when did we see you sick or ill or naked or in need and provide in any way sins of omission? Now, after all of this in chapter 21, I then saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any ocean, no longer any sea. The sea is useless in the world of the biblical Israelite because its waters are sailing. You can't drink them. And you have a coastline that doesn't have a natural port. That's why as Genesis chapter 1 opens, we have that wonderful evocative image. In the beginning, you remember, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, at that time, the earth was formless and empty. So God is going to create forms and then fill them. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, the oceans, if you will. Darkness, no light. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the sea, which represented chaos. God's above them. He's supernatural. And he will tell them they can move to points determined, but no farther. Okay, so again, think of the vast part of this world that we know that's covered by oceans. And in the new heaven and in the new earth, there'll no longer be any sea. All of that land, if you will, will be available for habitation in the vision, most certainly, because the sea was symbolic of chaos. Now, I saw then in verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Mourning, crying, pain, anguish, all emotions associated with death. Death is an abomination. It was never part of God's plan that human beings should suffer and die. Remember when he threatened Adam. He said, if you don't obey, you will die the death. And Adam had no idea what that meant. We know what death is like. Death is foul. Death is an abomination. And death is going to be abolished in this new order when the old is supplanted by the new. He who was seated on the throne said, verse 5, this is God speaking, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done because I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and the murderers and the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts and idolaters and all other liars, their place 
will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This will be their fate. This will be the second death. They will have to die first and then face judgment. And that judgment will result in their assignment to this perpetual place of suffering. Now then, one of the seven angels in verse 9, who had in the previous vision the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came to me and said, Come now, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The bride is the new Jerusalem that came down from heaven. Verse 2 of this same chapter, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The city of Jerusalem was built and its buildings covered with marble and limestone, which gleamed white in the noonday sun. It was a glaring whiteness that people marveled at. And this will be, in fact, what John sees in his vision. So in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at each gate. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all 12. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold in his hand used to measure the city, its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as is long. 12,000 stadia converted to miles from Roman understanding to our own day is a city whose walls stretch 1,400 miles in each direction, north, south, east, and west. 1,400 miles, halfway across our great nation. Again, not meant to be taken literally, but as a literary image suggesting a city larger than can ever be imagined, certainly capable of containing all of the righteous. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick, 200 feet wide, measured by men, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophorase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, at least it seemed so. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. No city had ever been imagined like this, much less seen. And John looks at it with amazement. 
Now, here's a very interesting point of reference in verse 22. Looking about in the vision, John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They are present in the city. The city also did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there and no need to close the gates at night out of fear of attack. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure, though, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then, and then the angel showed me something most spectacular. He showed me in chapter 22 the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, right down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, this coursing waterway was first revealed to us in Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel chapter 47, the prophet Ezekiel in a vision, writes, The man, an angel, brought me back to the entrance of the temple after measuring it. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out to the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing to the south side. At first, in verse 3, it was ankle deep. And then in verse 4, it was knee deep. At the end of verse 4, it had risen to the level of his waist. Eventually, in verse 5, it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. And then he led me to the bank of the river. And in verse 7, when Ezekiel says, I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, Jericho, and there it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the Dead Sea, the waters there become fresh. And swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So the river, so where the river flows, everything will live. And fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engadi to Eglaim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Fruit trees, in verse 12, of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Again, in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5 and following. You flee from Jerusalem. And in verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 14, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. And on that day, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name 
the only name. So we see it in the prophet Ezekiel. We see this symbolism in the prophecy of Zechariah. And we see it now again in Revelation chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of water, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, right down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life that we last heard about in the book of Genesis, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, Ezekiel chapter 47. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That is, they will be marked with the sign of the Lord, the cross. They'll be thinking the thoughts of God, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Remember, the first word spoken by God is not in English, let there be light, but rather the singular command, light, and light appeared. John begins his gospel in his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on in John chapter 1 to say, through him, John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has never been able to overpower it. So darkness has been vanished now by the presence of God's light. In verse 6 of chapter 22, the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, Ezekiel and Zechariah, most certainly, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. They haven't happened yet, but they will. Behold, Jesus now speaks. I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. When is Jesus coming? He's coming in prophetic fulfillment when the forces of Rome surround the city of Jerusalem, breach her defenses, and dismantle the temple. Not one stone left upon another. That starts the clock ticking in what is called by theologians the age of the church in which we currently exist that will come to an end one day and then the events of Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22 will roll out as well. Now John says in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. You need to worship God. And he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. At the end of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, the prophet was told to seal up a scroll that was open, seven seals, in Revelations 4th, 5th, and 6th chapters. Because at the time of the prophet Daniel, he couldn't understand the meaning of the words on the scroll. Now, this scroll is to be 
opened and read publicly. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him, in verse 11, who does wrong, continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile, continue to be vile. That is their choice. But let him who does right, continue to do right. And let him who is holy, continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done, deeds, trumping, creeds. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last consonants of the Greek alphabet. All of this New Testament narrative is written in the Greek language, and so if you're the Alpha and the Omega, you're the beginning and the end, you are the Lord of all. Blessed are those, in verse 14, who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city as wedding guests, if you will, outside of the dogs, those who practice a magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, those who refuse to repent. You can repent of any of those sins and be restored into right relationship with God. But if you insist on continuing, you do so imperiling your own mortal soul. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you, John, this testimony for my churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So as we recall the opening of Revelation and the first verses promising a blessing to any and all who hear, read, or read themselves these words. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is the one, you and I, who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Well, in Revelation chapter 22 verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and his share in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And so, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus with, be with God's people. Amen. And the Bible, from beginning to end, all 73 books, now comes to an end. What are you going to do with your Thursday nights? Many people decide, you know, I loved it the first time. I think I'll go through it again. And do feel emboldened to encourage others to begin this journey, especially as I lock down a new Thursday evening venue. I don't know that I'll be able to do that in the fall, given the restrictions of the quarantine and churches slowly coming back online. But hopefully in the winter time, the winter quarter, 
in early January, I'll be able to open a new class. I opened the class at St. Teresa in the winter quarter to rave reviews. And here we are now, having completed the journey together. I'm fond of reminding you that, except for that one odd Thursday night, I've been the only one there every Thursday. And we will find a way to honor all of you who have made this journey through the Bible uh, with congratulations and a certificate of completion. I'll tell you more about that in the summer series and also via the newsletter, which I'll be sending out early next week. So I never tire of reminding you, and I'm so blessed to know what a great student you are. Never forget that. And thank you for finding me online and continue to listen to my Gospel Comes to Life reflections that will be posted on a weekly basis from now on at this same podcast website. So God bless and good night until I see you again.